in Ephesians verse one, or chapter one, verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us all in all wisdom and insight. Please be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would guide our understanding of these verses. Lord, as we walk slowly through this book of Ephesians, Lord, it, like all of Scripture, is breathed out by you, inspired by you, full of your truth, full of your glory, free from all error and deceit. And we ask that you would apply it into our hearts, that it would sink below the surface, that it would change who we are. Lord, those of us who are on the other side of the cross, having repented and trusted in Christ for salvation, may it sanctify us. May it make us more like Christ. May it make us more eager to share the gospel with the lost. And for those in here this morning who have not yet repented and trusted in Christ, may this be the arrow that you use by your spirit to pierce their hearts and to claim them as your own. We ask that you would glorify yourself by the preaching of your word, despite the great fallibility of the preacher, that you would remove all distractions and that you would please yourself by hearing your word proclaimed amongst your people. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. <clears throat> well, we continue to walk through the book of Ephesians, and we're still in chapter 1. And as we unpack what our verse 3 calls every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, what we saw last week was the Father's past election, that that's the first blessing in verses 4 through 6. What we're going to look at this week is verses 7 and 8, but it's in the larger section of 7 through 12, which is the Son's blessing in salvation, but it's the Son's present redemption of us. And then the last section we know is verses 13 and 14 is the Spirit's sealing for our future full glorification. But what we looked at last week in verses 4 through 6 was the Father's loving election of His people in the past. We saw that He chose us, we did not choose him. We love him because he loved us from eternity past, that he never began loving us who he is, always loved his chosen. God has blessed his people because he loved them and because he chose them. And his motivation was love and delight, not anything in us. We were not the object. God loved and chose because that's what he does not because he saw something that he desired or worse, needed in us. And this brings exclusive praise to the Father. We saw at the end of verse six that it was to the praise of the glory of his grace that God gets all the praise for saving who he saves. Now, when we, oftentimes, when we get saved, we start out as Pelagians. You know who Pelagius was? He's not on your Twitter feed. But he was a guy back in early centuries of the church who said, we have enough grace in us to just make it happen. And we go and we decide and we do it. It's all of us. God just made it available. 
we start out sometimes when we get saved thinking that, like, I, I did this. I, I weighed the options or I was moved at camp or I saw this thing, I went to an event and then I did it. But then time goes on and you see you still have a lot of sin and now you see your sin more clearly. And now you're on the other side of the cross and you're thinking, okay, well, obviously I did not do that all by myself because look at who I still am. And now you can get ingratiated into the church and you see more in your sin. So then you go, well, okay, so it wasn't me just kind of making it happen. But I think I just cooperated. I gave a little bit. I gave 10. God gave 90. And so you, then you become an Arminian. I just cooperated with God. But then if God is gracious to you, he lets you live even longer. And then you just keep seeing more sin in your life more deficiency, more repetitive failings over and over again. And then you are driven to your knees and you say, God, I know that you did this whole thing because look at what I still am. And if I'm still this now, there's no way I was anything worth anything beforehand. And so then you become a Calvinist. That's how it happens. It goes Pelagian, Arminian, Calvin, and that all the way through. And then you finally end up in the right spot. But that's where we... Ended up last week at the end, and Spurgeon said it like this, God must have chosen me because I would have never have chosen him, and he must have chosen me before the foundation of the world because as soon as he saw me alive, he would have never have chosen me. It had to be before any of that ever happened. And so then we get into this. In verse 7 and 8, we get to the Son's present redemption of sinners. And we want to see the Father work, the Son work, and the Spirit work in our salvation. Too often, this is a, a great plug for Tuesday nights coming up in May when we get into that second chapter of the 1689 Confession where it's going to be about God and the Trinity. We are Trinitarian, but sometimes our Trinitarian theology is very, very weak. But all of God is involved in all of salvation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And too often, what we don't do is understand that. And we fall into one of three camps because it's just, it's easier. Our minds, it's hard to think about the Trinity. It's hard. I, we, we all get that. Nobody's saying that we don't understand that. But if we're not careful, we can fall into one of three camps. The first camp is probably the most prominent most ubiquitous everywhere, the sentimentalism camp. Sentimentalism. Everything is sentimental, and that emphasizes Jesus. And they sing songs at churches like that where it sounds like Jesus is your boyfriend, and he can't wait to snuggle you and hold you, and he's just lovey and gushy, and it ignores the Father. It ignores any concept of wrath or anything like that, and it has a little bit of emphasis on the Spirit because he's kind of like Jesus' helper, but it's mostly just mushy about Jesus. That's one era camp we could fall into. The second era camp, it would be just the charismaticism where it emphasizes the spirit because you just can't wait to get all these awesome gifts. I get saved and the Holy Spirit gives me superpowers and that's what I'm about. I'm all about that. Nothing really about the Father. Jesus is cool, but I'm really just about the spirit because he's gonna make me awesome. The third camp, and this is, this is not as popular, certainly regionally for us in the South, but it's called the hyper-Calvinism camp. It emphasizes the Father and, and foundations before the foundations of the world, the choosing. It ignores the Spirit completely and kind of talks about the Son and doesn't really have anything to do in a full rounded out Trinitarian doctrine of salvation. But we need to be diligent to mark and avoid all three of those erroneous camps. We must follow the Scriptures. We are Bible people above all things. 
And the Bible, and we'll, that's why we're so blessed to study Ephesians chapter 1, breaks out the roles, not divisively, but economically, inside the Trinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and how we are saved. And what we're going to look at this morning is the Son's work of redemption in our salvation. We, the word redemption, we're going to talk about it in a minute, but we presume much about that word, but we often know very little about that word. Most of what it ends up, the, the word redeem or redeeming, it usually just means your team lost last week and they're gonna hope to win this week. They're looking for redemption this week. And we do that with a lot of Bible words. We just, we lose their meaning, like the word hope and other things like that. So we're gonna define that word, understand. We're gonna look eyes wide open into the work of Christ on our behalf. Our first point comes from verse seven, just the first third of that verse. In him, we have redemption through his blood. So this first heading is Christ's redemption. It says, in him, we have redemption through his blood. This is a call for us to understand the exclusivity of Christ. The Father's election was freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That's what verse six told us. Though he loved us from eternity past, we knew nothing of that love experientially until we place faith in Christ, until we are saved we trust in Christ in space and in time. Therefore, the Father's choice of love comes to us via Christ. It is only in Jesus that we have this redemption. The Bible's exclusivity is massively unpopular in today's pluralistic society. Do you know what it means to have a pluralistic society? That's what we live in. Everybody's true as long as you say that nobody else is wrong. Pluralism rules the day. When everyone has their own truth, one claiming to be the truth is despised. When everyone is encouraged to find their own way, the one claiming to be the way is despicable. When a culture believes that the goal of life or rather that the good life, attaining the good life is available anywhere and by any means, one claiming to be the life is deplorable. And that's where we live. We live in a day that hates the claim of exclusivity. But Ephesians 1.7 makes it clear that that is where redemption is. It's in Christ alone. There's this popular illustration uh, that some genius came up with to explain how all religions work. All religions work like this. There's an elephant in the field and these blind men come up to it, just a handful of these blind men, and they're all touching the elephant. And then that elephant represents religion. And so these blind men, one of them at the front says, an elephant is kind of like a snake. It's long and, and, and rough and it's a snake because he's touching the trunk. And then another one says that an elephant is like a pillar or a tree. He's just touching the leg. Another one says that it's, well, it's more, it's skinny and straight. Uh, with a little bit of fuzz on it, and that's the one touching the tail. It's like a wall. That's the one touching the side. That that's what all religion is. Everybody has their own version, but it's just the same elephant. You just can't see everything, so you don't know it all. That is a pluralistic illustration of how religion works. It's all the same. You just have a piece, and he has a piece, and you have a piece, but you're all blind, and you can't tell. Let me just debunk that real quick. First, the arrogance 
of the narrator in that illustration has to be connoted. You have to, you have to point that out, that somebody can see that this is an elephant and it's all the idiots that are blind that can't tell. And so that's all religious people. <laughs> if only you could see, you can't see, but I can see, and I know that it's all one elephant. So there's kind of a pomposity, you can take that word to the bank, pomposity to the whole illustration that who is the person that sees and knows it's a full elephant and not a snake or a wall or a tree? Secondly, that whole illustration gets blown to smithereens if the elephant speaks. If the elephant speaks, then it all goes out the window. And we have a God who has spoken. He has spoken. So we're not stumbling around in the darkness. He has spoken and we can know him. So Jesus and all the Bible are clear that he is the only way. And people will say, that's so hateful. That's so hateful. It's not hateful, first of all, to ever tell the truth. The truth is never hateful. We're never ashamed of the truth. And it's not hateful when that one way is freely offered. Nobody ever said, you know what? I know that there's a disease out there killing everybody all the time, always. And you're telling me there's only one cure? How dare you? I insist that there be another cure. If there's not more than one cure, then your cure is wrong. There has to be a cure that I like or a cure that I already decided on or that they decided on. There has to be multiple cures. No, don't you just want the disease to go away? Then here's the one cure. That's not hateful at all. That's a miracle. That's a blessing. That's goodness from on high that there is one cure and it's being offered to everyone. The gospel is freely offered to all who will listen isn't that what Jesus told the disciples to do? Go and make disciples of all nations. Then the Mark says, preach it to every creature, everything that moves. So why all the vitriol over the exclusivity of Christ? Well, the first reason why is that the, those who are not in Christ hate God. Romans 1, 28, the following says as much. This is the conclusion of the description in Paul's Letter to the Romans of what unbelievers are. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. What are those things? Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That's reason number one. Reason number two is, is they create their own ways. In the book of Romans also, in chapter 10, Paul is describing why Israelites won't come to believe the truth. Because they want God, but they want God on their terms. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They're fired up, but it's not according to the truth. They even say the right name, Yahweh. And people in our day say the right name, Jesus, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So we have haters of God and we just have Cain in Genesis 4. What was Cain's sin? 
He said, I'm gonna worship God however I want. And God will take whatever I throw down in front of him. And that will be good enough. And he will receive me based on that. That's Cain's problem. And that's what we live in. So the exclusivity of Christ can't be ignored. But what is the exclusive about? That word redemption. Redemption. Salvation in the Bible. So there's a whole heading of theology called soteriology. That's the doctrine of salvation. And within that, there's lots of words the Bible uses to describe, picture, and fill out for us how we're saved. So justification, that's a courtroom term, a legal term, meaning a judge with full punitive power sitting on the bench, looks at the guilty and declares them not guilty. Then you have another term that we know really well. We talked about it last week, adoption. That's a family term, a familial term that you're brought in by a benevolent, loving father as an orphan into the family and made a full son or daughter. We have that term to describe salvation. We also have the word reconciliation. That's a relational term. Relational term meaning that there was a connectum, there was a unity, it was divided, it was divisive, and then now it's brought back together, reconciled, reconciliated, brought back together. Now what redemption is, redemption is a marketplace term or an economic term. It brings it into the world of business or thinking through economically. It's the Greek word apolutrosis. And how it's most often used is, in its greatest context is, is the buying back of a slave. The buying back of a slave, making free by the payment of a ransom. If you know Mark 10, 45, then you know that, that even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The ransom, a payment, that's what redemption is, purchasing freedom for those who can't. You can't buy your own freedom as a slave, correct? Because everything that you earn goes to the master. You don't have any earning power on your own. This first idea, this first concept of redemption redemption pops up as early as as, uh, Exodus 13. Well, the word does. The concept is way before that, but the word pops up in Exodus 13. So in Exodus 13, if you know your Old Testament, then you know that that is the beginning of them leaving Egypt. And as God's instructing them in chapters 12 and chapters 13 on how to do the Passover meal, what he tells them all is that I own, God's saying, I own every single firstborn male, whether it's an animal or a human. The animal you're gonna sacrifice, unless it's a donkey, then you're gonna redeem it because that's no good to eat and you need that donkey to haul your stuff. So you redeem it. But then also your firstborn son is to be redeemed. Redeemed meaning bought, bought with a price. Now here's the explanation in Exodus 13, 14. And it shall be when your sons ask you in time to come saying, what is this? Meaning, what are we doing? What, what is this Passover meal, dad? See, when we, when we don't have our kids involved in worship or seeing us as parents doing things according to the Bible, then our kids are robbed of asking this question. What are you doing, dad? Well, then what you're supposed to answer, you say, you will say to him with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, son, I sacrifice 
to the Lord the males, the firstborn, the first offspring of every room, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. Dad, why are you doing this and why didn't I die? Well, because son, I redeemed you. I bought you out of that role. You were gonna have to die, but another died in your place. I bought you out of that. See, this is the, the concept that somebody has to pay. No matter what you have that is good in life, on any level, somebody had to pay for it. Somebody had to pay. There's a famous old saying that there ain't no free lunches. That's just Texas wisdom. Somebody had to pay. You're eating it, and maybe you didn't pay for it, but somebody did. Somebody had to pay for it. See, our salvation, the freedom that we have in Christ, our boundness for heaven, it costs us nothing, but it costs Christ everything. That's the term redemption. And because it costs us nothing, here's what I fear happens too often. We tend to value it very little because it didn't cost us anything. We have to ask, this is what I had to ask myself all week long. <laughs> How can you be so casual towards Christ's gift to you? And I challenge you to ask yourself that question. Why are you so indifferent towards your ransom fee? Why are you so casual about Christ's cross? That's, the, that's what was making us have to deal with because I was and you were, everyone who is in Christ now, you were a slave to sin. You were owned by somebody else. The Bible is clear. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And we're not confused by the word slave. We know what that means. You are owned by somebody else. Romans 6, 17 says it again. You were slaves of sin. And what was the result of that? If sin is your master, your slave master, your slave owner, then what comes from that? How does that slave owner compensate his slaves. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. So what that slave master is going to pay you is death. That's the end result of it all. Without being redeemed out of that slavery, eternal death in hell is the only result. The cross of Christ, that's the price. That's what it costs to buy you out. Without it, slavery remains and your death sentence has to be carried out. That's what redemption means. That's what this concept means. Now, are you beginning to see the spiritual economics at work? Somebody had to pay something for you to go free. And what was it? It says in verse seven, in him we have the redemption through his blood. There is a necessity end to end in the Bible. Genesis 1, 1, Revelation 22, 21 the necessity of blood. And Hebrews 9.22 says as much, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You cannot be freed unless shed blood is attributed to your status. And it can't just be any kind of blood. It can't just be anything. In the Old Covenant, Old Testament saw centuries of insufficient blood. 
Moses gets the law and Moses' life begins around 1500 BC. So for 1,500 years, there is buckets, gallons, tons of blood spilled insufficiently to cover sin. That's what, that's what happens, 1,500 years of it. The United States isn't even 500 years old. 1,500 years of that from Moses to Jesus. And what did we need? Well, not those. Hebrews 10, 3 and 4 says, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year by year. There's a reminder, but there's not a redeemer. Verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's copious, but it's ineffective. It's just a reminder. It's not a redeemer. So you look at Genesis 3 for the first picture of this. Genesis 3, 21, you know, you know what happens in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve eat the fruit and they sin and then plunge humanity all into sin and the world into sin. And then God, in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. What does that have to do with the concept of redemption and with the concept of shedding blood? In order, Adam and Eve, for your sinful selves to be covered, blood had to be spilled. Adam and Eve remained connected to God and avoided the just, the right sentence of death because isn't that what God promised? In the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. That's what they deserved, but they didn't get that. They, instead of that just sentence of death, they remained connected to God, not dead physically, because of the shed blood of another. Think about Adam and Eve and their concept. They don't even know what it looks like for anything to die. They don't even know what it looks like for a flower to wilt. They've never even seen a stick not on a tree. They have no idea what death looks like. Then the first time that they see death, who's doing it? God's doing it. To who? Not you. Something else. Something else is dying so that you can be covered. You realize that you are naked and now nature has thorns and thistles and sharp, pointy, painful things. You need covering. And how will you be covered? Because something else is gonna die. The blood of another is gonna be spilled to have your sins covered. So this is why the Galatians, Galatians chapter three calls the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, a tutor. A tutor, what does a tutor do? A tutor is somebody that you hire to watch or to teach your kid who's struggling in a subject and they're always over the kid's shoulder. Like, oh, no, 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 carry the one. No, 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 that's what I mean. What does that make you think of when you do? Remember, remember we know that, that's a trigger word and you go to that and then that makes you, you sing the song. That's what a tutor does, right? Like you're constantly hovering over the kid, helping to make them sure they get the point, right? And so that's Galatians 3 that Paul says, that's what the law was to Israel, how was the law tutoring them in redemption? The people of God in any era of remote faithfulness, anytime they walked by the tabernacle, the tent structure that moved around in uh, the wilderness with them or the temple, do you know what that scene was like? If they just walked by that, they know about it, all they see is a blood covered priest because all he does is kill animals all day long. For who? For you. And then you walk by and all you hear at the tabernacle, the temple, the place of worship are animals screaming as they die because they don't die quietly. And then what you smell when you walk by that is dried stench of blood. 
That's tutoring. That's do you see what your sin costs? That's what they're supposed to get. Why? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, they know that God takes sin seriously. And they know how seriously, that something has to die. Something has to die all day, every day for my sin and how costly that is. And they see how gracious God is in accepting a substitute, that the priests aren't cannibals, slaughtering humans over and over and over and over. It's just animals. And then they see how insufficient those substitutes were because no matter how blood covered yesterday was, today is gonna be just as bloody. And then tomorrow is gonna be just as bloody. That's an insufficient solution. They should be longing for a permanent solution. The tutor is telling them, you need a fix because this can't go on forever. And Hebrews 7 tells us who the fix is. Verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, Jesus, who was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered himself. There is the permanent solution. Jesus had to have real flesh and real blood, really torn and really spilled before a real death, because without that, we have no redemption. And he has to also be really sinless and thus be really God for it to be the final sacrificial lamb. So verse seven says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The quandary of forgiveness is something that we don't necessarily wrestle with. What is, this is Christ's forgiveness, verse 7b. The great cosmic question that we have to deal with is how can an infinitely righteous God forgive infinitely unrighteous creatures. How can he do that? Any judge who fails to punish criminals according to the law is a perpetrator of what? Injustice. That's injustice to not have them punished according to the law. And if God doesn't punish sinners or criminals, think about the courtroom, for their sins, their crimes, then doesn't that make him unrighteous, meaning a perpetrator of injustice? See, too often we hear the, the very man-centered, self-centered, self-aggrandizing statement, how could a good God send anyone to hell? If he's good, he would never do that. But let's just change it to what it really should be saying. How could a righteous God let a single sinner into heaven and not completely impugn his character and thus thrust the universe into utter chaos because God, the creator and sustainer, has been compromised at his core. How can that not be the case? See, every corrupt judge, think about the, the judge that's in the back pocket of the mob. When they finally get caught, aren't they then arrested and tried on all the same crimes that they failed to punish? If they let all those criminals go, and they're, they're, de they're defrauding the law, then when they finally get caught, they're held accountable for all those crimes. Would that not be true of God? If he just let it all go, just let all sin go? Now, he's culpable in all of the sins that we do. 
because he's the judge and he's not dealing with it. How does God then not become guilty of my sin when he forgives me? What we have to do, we have to stop doing this. We have to stop viewing forgiveness of sins in scriptures like it's two kids on the playground fighting and their mommies come and say, forgive him, ask for forgiveness. You have to forgive him. That's playground theology. That's not biblical theology. God can't just let it go. It can't just disappear. He can't just say, fine, I just choose not to care about your sin. There's that kind of, that kind of, the playground forgiveness is trivial. There's no context of justice. The very nature of God is on the line here. If he's gonna forgive us, then his very nature, his essence, his being is on the line. How can he do that and not change who he is? Not lessen, weaken, dilute who he is. Because God is the judge and he's the offended party. His character and essence demands that he punishes sin. We know these verses, Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Psalm 34.16, The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth, totally obliterate. Exodus 34, seven, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations. So then you go, how can God forgive? We read that in verse seven and we, yep, that's Bible talk. I get that, great. But we should be asking the question of how? How can he do that? How can he forgive sins? There is only one way in which God can forgive our sins and not become complicit with them himself. He must punish another in our place. That's the must take our sins upon him as if they were his sins and stand before the heavenly tribunal as if he were guilty. Isaiah 53, six says that that's what Jesus did. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Someone else must go unforgiven for us to receive the forgiveness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus. Someone else must be cursed in order for us to be blessed. That's what this, is, this whole section in chapter one is all about. The blessings, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us. How? From the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That's the only way he could buy us out of the curse was to become a curse. That was the ransom price. That's what it costs. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Someone else endured eternal hell so that you, all who trust in Christ, will never have to. Too often, what we think of is Christ's suffering as merely physical. 
And it's always really impressive when you talk about the cat of nine tails and the bone chips and the metal that were in them and then how it would do, 39 lashes and how long and what kind of thorn variety the thorns were and how long they were and, and what happens to your body when you lose that much blood. We talk about all those things. That's fine and good, it's interesting, but lots of people have died lots of deaths for the glory of God. None of them were hung up on a cross and then at that moment, endure whatever eternal hell is from God for all the elect. That's what's happening right there. That's the invisible to our eyes suffering. That's what it costs. All of hell was endured. That's why Christ has to be fully God or truly God and truly man at that moment to experience all of what hell is. It wasn't just cut up flesh and really hurting skin and loss of blood. It was enduring all of hell on the cross because God couldn't just overlook or forget about our sin, but he could redeem us by substitute. He could do that. Jesus wasn't an example on the cross, a mere example of how to live and how to take mean people doing mean things against you, nor a martyr. He wasn't a victim either. He himself was the payment. He was the payment. He's how free lunches can exist because that payment happened. He was what it costs, necessary to God to forgive sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. God, think about the, 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 the moment of the crucifixion like this. God sacrificed himself to satisfy himself to draw his people to himself. That's what happened at the cross. That's what redemption costs. And why would he do this? You get to verses seven and eight. It's according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Why would he do this? I mean, this is where you, you have to stare into the realities of what redemption is and what it costs, but then you get drawn up. God's gracious nature demanded that he do it. Because he is gracious. God, not, doesn't, God doesn't sometimes show grace. He doesn't have moments of graciousness. He always is what he is, all of his attributes. He's infinitely those attributes all the time. So he's infinitely wrath and infinitely justice and infinitely mercy and infinitely grace. He is gracious. And if he is that, then he must have done this. He must have done this. His very essence compelled him to do that. God shows grace because he is gracious. He is grace. He's not sometimes, but always must be. And the thing is, is that if you are in Christ today because you repented and trusted in Jesus, it wasn't because you were lovely. You were the opposite of lovely. I know some of you right now. You know each other. You know me right now. You know, ain't nothing in that guy. And God was like, I got to have that. It was because he is gracious. There was no reason for God to love you coming out of you. You had no appeal to God. He wasn't drafting a team and looking for potential. He just is love and he is grace. So he worked redemption for his elect. He must. He was gracious to you anyway. Why? Because he must. God cannot deny himself. For him to be not gracious 
or not known or worshiped as gracious would be to deny himself. And he can't do that. And then how, what is this grace? What does it say in verse eight? Which he lavished on us. The riches of his grace were lavish. Nothing was held in reserve. Nothing was held back at the cross. God wasn't like, hey, here's enough to kind of get you going. I got some more if you run out. He put it all out, lavished us. God's redemptions of sinner is lavish grace. His riches are shoveled upon the redeemed. That's what we have. Lavish is the same word used in the gospels, in the New Testament, for leftover. After Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the baskets of leftovers, the 12 baskets of fish, the 12 baskets of bread, it's the same word. So those people were all stuffed to the rafters with food and there's 24 baskets of it left over. You've had all the grace that you can possibly handle, but don't worry, there's 24 more baskets. More than you could ever need, ever take in, and there's 24 more baskets of grace. You have, (laughs) here's where we have to say, if you have not come to Christ in repentance and faith, if you have not done that, and your reason is this, I've just sinned too much. I've just done too much wrong. There's no way, there's no way on earth that whoever God is could ever redeem me or forgive me of my sin. Then please read here the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, all wisdom and all insight. Whatever sins that you think you've done that have piled up so high, they could never pile higher than God's forgiveness, than God's redemption because you can't out-God God. You can't be bigger than him. You can't be unconquerable to him. That's what his grace does. You are not more powerful than him. His grace will always save every single person who calls out to him salvation because he has lavish grace, not mediocre grace. He dumps it out. He doesn't dole it out. That's what he has. And Romans 5, 20 makes it so clear. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace was confounded. No, grace abounded all the more. When sin just gets bigger, you realize this is how grace is even bigger than that. It just keeps going even further. Verse 21, so that as in sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, what do we have in Christ? I mean, this is why we love to sing the hymn, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Because at the end of the day, that's all I have. And all I have is lavish riches of grace. If not, so ask yourself, are you content with just Christ? If he's all you have, and everything else goes to pot, are you content with just that? If not, then you're discontent with God's lavished riches of grace. Please reconsider. How is it possible? How is it possible to be discontent with just having Christ? It's because maybe you know very little about him. And the solution to that is come to church twice on Sunday, get in your Bible and be in fellowship with us and know more of Christ. It could be because you 
commune very little with him. Maybe you don't know how to pray. Then come and talk to me. We'll talk about what it is to pray. Listen to our pastoral prayer every Lord's Day that the elders put forward as a model for prayer. That's how we commune. Or it could be because your love of this world is too great. Pray that the Lord would break you of that. Pray that the Lord would would open your hands to release your grip on this world so that you can say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And it done, this was all done with wisdom and insight. Now we know that verses three through 14 is one long run on sentence. So all of your Bible translations out there are gonna punctuate this differently. I'm convinced that wisdom and insight go with verses seven and eight, that God's redemption was done with all wisdom and insight. God worked our redemption in infinite wisdom. It was not reactionary and it was not impulsive on his part. Too often we think by default that when Adam and Eve sin, God goes, ah, all right, plan B. It was always plan A. It was always going to happen that way because we needed to know him as gracious and merciful. So it always was gonna happen that way. This wasn't a reaction by God on any level. God intended to elect and redeem with love and lavish grace. He intended to do that. He was always gonna do that. He was always gonna be Romans 3, 26. For the demonstration, I say, of God's righteousness at the present time so that he, God, would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just, he never violates the law, but he's gracious by redeeming sinners, by justifying them through Christ's sacrifice. So we see the eternal coherence of this plan. How could you do that? The only way you could do that if you had a God-man, truly God, truly man, come, live a perfect life, die, become sin for us, endure hell for us, and then offer that salvation to all who will repent and believe. So that we can say with Paul in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. Have you ever thought about that verse? That verse, every time I think I, I'm, I'm with it, I'm not. So look at verse that, that verse, which we'll get to in a month's chapter three. Uh, it says, far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. So if you can think of it, he can do beyond it. So think of something bigger. He can do beyond that. Think of something bigger. So where does it end? I mean, this is supposed to blow your mind about who God is and what he's done. And then you see his redemption and all of that. I would have never have thought to ask for that. And I would never have comprehended that or put that together. That's to the praise of your glorious grace and your lavish grace that you conducted all of this with perfect wisdom and insight. So verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So we got one point of application. That's it. And we're done. The purpose of redemption. 1 Corinthians 6.20. For you have been bought with a price. That's the language of redemption right there. The ransom. You've been bought with a price. Now what should you do? Therefore, glorify God in your body. That does not mean we are going to have a liturgical dance up here. We don't want to see that. I'm thinking of a few men in here. (laughs) Glorify God in your body means you live now in this body. 
So you glorify God in this life that you have right now. That's what we do. Because we've been bought with a price, we glorify God. We are redeemed to glorify. What is Westminster Confession or Westminster Shorter Catechism question one? What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we do as the redeemed. And how do we do it? It's as simple as two points, evangelism and discipleship. Tell others who don't know, grow in Christ because you do know him. And how do you grow in Christ? You are a part of a local body. You come here. We bear burdens. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We call out each other's sin and graciously extend forgiveness and restoration. We help each other. We take meals to each other. We get into the word together. We study it. We do Tuesday nights and we do early mornings and we worship on the Lord's Day. We grow like that. And then we go out. We tell people. We stumble and we fumble, but we tell them. Because how could we not? What has Christ done for me? And his grace is so lavish. It's so abundant. Do you want it? That's how we go as those who are redeemed. We passionately apply this doctrine. And how could you not? Now that you know what redemption is, how could you not? Let's pray. Father in heaven, to say that we are dumbfounded and stricken mute by your redemption that comes to us in Christ is an understatement. Who are we? Who are we to be the recipients of all that? Why would you go to the extent to in all wisdom and insight have that plan and work it out in space and in time? And, and Lord, you go so far as to work it out individually that each of your redeemed that you chose to love before the foundations of the world, they can all tell a story. They can all tell a story about you. And it's different from everybody else's. Lord, we are, are um, amazed by your vastness as we see in this text. And we are humbled, smiling, humbled by your nearness in all of this. Who are we to know such a God? Who are we to be loved by such a God? Who are we? to be redeemed, to bought out of slavery to sin and set free by your lavish grace through Christ. Who are we? We know. We know that we're nobody. We know that we're insignificant. But we matter to you. Beyond all reason, we matter to you. Lord God, thank you. Please impress upon our hearts the gravitas of redemption of the price that had to be paid, for the vastness of our sin, please press upon our hearts with the gravitas of what it is that you have lavishly rich grace that you have dumped out on us. Press that upon our hearts. Change us more into the image of your son because we know all of this now. Apply it to our hearts. Let it be let it be what we chew on all day, today, this week, 
that you are the Redeemer, that, Lord Jesus, you are Christ, our Redeemer. And may that loom large in our life with sparkling brilliance in everything that we do and every conversation that we have. Lord, we thank you for the time we shared this morning. We ask that you continue to be pleased as we worship throughout the day. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.